0: Start On on demand.
1: Have you ever thought maybe you have a drinking problem? As we continue our series on alcohol, uncorked the dark side of drinking. I'll tell you that nearly 20 years ago, I had a drinking problem, and my parents told me, "Go see the Addictions Foundation of Manitoba, or get out." I will tell you about that experience how the addictions foundation helped me and we'll learn how they can help you or someone you love now and as ontario gets ready to ban cell phones in the classroom we'll find out how does it work in winnipeg in terms of bringing the phone into the class i'm brett mcgarry alongside greg mackling and loren mcnab we are mackling mcgarry and mcnab and this is the wednesday march 13th podcast for the start Mackling McGarry and McNabb. And I guess we should maybe start, Greg, by thanking our listener, Jeff, who alerted us yesterday to this monster storm that's brewing in the United States. And sure enough, it looks like it's poised to hit at least part of our province.
0: We spoke with the National Weather Service of Grand Forks yesterday, and they gave us some details about what this was going to look like. And when you use the term hurricane-like features in a winter storm warning, you know it's serious stuff. And it looks as though Winnipeg may escape the worst of it, Mm -hmm. but the Red River Valley south of the Canada-U.S. border is
1: not going to avoid the worst of this. Yeah, there's a blizzard warning in effect for Grand Forks County, and it's an effect from, uh, it says, 1 a.m. Thursday to 1 a.m. Friday. Significant blizzard conditions expected. Total snow accumulations of 1 to 8 inches. Ice accumulations of a light glaze expected. That sound the only light well, glaze I like is on a donut. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't like the sound of this. Not fun to drive on.
2: <laughs> I was just thinking that it's that time of year too. I drove in with some really bad fog this morning, but I couldn't even see the lights of the city as I was coming up seventy five. I didn't even know I was in Saint Norbert until I was in Saint Norbert. And wow. so it's that time of year where when the snow falls and it's like close to that freeze zone, that it's almost more, more worrisome to drive. And then you throw in the wind and the impact it can have on just the slipperiness. Slipperiness of a road.
1: Yeah, and there's going to be 55-mile-per-hour winds in this. That's 88 kilometers oh boy. an hour. Thankfully, it's not 88 miles per hour, or else we'd be jumping through time, back-to-the-future style. Very nice. <laughs> well done. Um, but, yeah, so so Winnipeg tonight looking at some snow and still some stiff wind up to 70 kilometers an hour, potentially. So, uh, the, So Winnipeg under the special weather statement, southeastern Manitoba under the snowfall warning. So we'll keep an eye on that. And this blast of winter comes just as the Red River Mutual Trail closes yesterday. I made it just in the nick of time. I finally went.
2: You know what? I have... Okay, I am proud of you, but then you revealed this morning that you didn't skate.
1: No. So that... It's like, I just went okay, for a walk.
2: So do we really say we made it down the Red River Trail yes. and we didn't skate?
1: Because I didn't know you could walk on it. Sure. I, for whatever no, reason, I, I thought it was just a skating trail. So I went for a walk the other day and I went into the forks and I saw people walking. I thought, I could have been walking on this thing all this time. I think they have two separate yeah. tracks.
2: It's super cool to even walk on there. Yeah. I will say, I don't know if that counts for me as you completing the trail.
1: Oh, I'm not saying I completed it. I just visited it.
2: Oh, mm. you didn't go to the end. Well, he I, did, I, I took
1: went, a picture I, I, of the end, he yeah, went, went right
0: to the end.
2: See, I thought, I saw that, and yeah. I thought you were on skates, and then my third thought was Brecken skate, and I had all these things going through my head, but I didn't think you'd appreciate like a 10 p.m. phone call when we're all supposed
0: to be sleeping. So. Yeah. it all out? Yeah. yeah, yeah I I'm it supposed it. to be sleeping. <laughs> they had
1: it, uh, I guess earlier yesterday, they had closed it from the Hugo Docks and the Assiniboine to Osborne, so I made it as far as Osborne, and then turned back, but there were patches on there where I thought this is closing today. There's no way this stays open beyond today. So I'm glad I at least checked it out. I've never been on the trail. It was a neat way to see Winnipeg from a perspective I've never seen. Yeah, I agree with you
0: wholeheartedly. In the summertime, when you get out on a boat and you're down on either one of the rivers, it is a completely different perspective of the city, one that uh, hopefully everyone gets an opportunity to get once in a while. Uh, It just gives you just that sense that, that uh, Winnipeg is a little bit more beautiful than than sometimes we give it credit for, at least
1: in my mind. Open for seventy four days—that's a record. That's, that is
0: pretty good. It's incredible how quickly, though, it starts to deteriorate. Just needs that sun beating down on it, yeah. uh, like it was yesterday, for a little while. But even my driveway, where I don't have it completely cleared, started to get slushy yesterday. I like that. It's a great sign that spring is on the way. But yeah, I kept it, thinking of the Wicked Witch uh, in the Oz. It's
2: melting. (laughs) That's what I kept thinking yesterday. I was so excited to see it. And then my kids are like, where is this all going to go?
0: Great question. Mm, Very good question. I think we're all asking and waiting with bated breath to see uh, what the answer to that
1: question is. And today we continue our series, Uncorked, The Dark Side of Drinking. And today we're going to look at behavior at 637 Loren is going to take us on a journey to find out what's involved in a trip to the drunk tank, right?
2: Yeah, so that's how many people would call uh, the facility. It's a jail, essentially, uh, in the sense of you're locked into a room. If you're if you're arrested or, or detained, rather, drunk, that's where you go. And we all refer to it as the drunk tank. It's, of course, known as Main Street Project. And it was a really fascinating experience to just step inside one of those units or cells and talk to the staff in terms of what they see there and kind of put a real face to... I think what we assume is the clientele that goes there or the stereotype, typical clientele, and having them explain just all the different kinds of walks of life that end up uh, at Mainstream Project is pretty incredible. So that's right after 6.30.
1: And then at 7.37, I want to tell you about how almost 20 years ago I needed uh, to seek out the help. Well, I, wasn't, I, didn't, I didn't choose to go. My parents said, you're going to the Addictions Foundation or you're out. How old were you? I was 22, I think. Yeah. Uh, So I had to go to the Addictions Foundation to, to get a hold of my drinking. So I want to share that story with you in case you are wondering about your drinking or maybe you have someone in your life, a family member, a friend who has some problematic drinking behaviors and you want to help them get control of it before it's too late. I give your parents credit
0: for opening that door for you and maybe pushing you through it. Sometimes that is completely necessary. Uh, much better parenting than I would say some of the wealthiest Americans that oh we boy. learned about yesterday who were writing checks anywhere from ten and $15,000 up to millions of dollars to make sure their kids got into Prestigious colleges, whether they wanted to go there or not, including two Hollywood names that people are familiar with.
1: Felicity Huffman, one of them, and uh Lori oh, yeah. Lachlan. Thank you. Yes, yeah, yeah.
0: from Full House mm. fame. Aunt Rebecca or Aunt Becky, because <laughs> she was affectionately referred to. How about you just pay for tutors? Uh, Yeah. How about you just pay for tutors? We
2: keep saying this, but what happens if you weren't able to get into that school? I understand a lot of those elite universities like Yale and Harvard's of the world, they're about marks, but they're also also about so many other things. But if you weren't smart enough to get into that school, but you're paid to get in, then are you sitting in those, like, say, stats classes like I did in university going, I I am ill prepared for the math that's, (laughs) that's happening here right now, you know, like, and your parents just paid X hundreds of thousands of dollars to get you there? Like you're not supposed to be there.
0: I suppose that should be the next part of this investigation is to see how many of these children of privilege ended up graduating, ended up getting any sort of uh, marks that that are postable or even... uh, Anything they'd be proud of, so i would be anxious to know what the uh, what the outcome was on that front, but we'll we'll dig into that a, a tiny bit deeper and and talk about it as we make our way through the morning. You
1: mentioned stats. you took a statistics class Loren
2: yeah, I, I think I think, I think I had to it was a journalism degree, oh, okay. but I think it was one of those mandatory courses and I, it was like I, I do recall very clearly sitting in there. As an aside, the professor had a drinking problem, but...
1: <laughs> I, I took st- the but statistics the, course. the course was just... I I do it. I had uh, like 92% going into the exam, and I figured I realized or I calculated I needed 19% on the final to pass the course, and (laughs) I got twenty-two percent. Get out. I just bombed the exam, and then when I got up to leave, there were these dividers set up on the table, and I knocked one of them over. So I thought, well, that's fitting. (laughs) Because I just destroyed myself on this exam, and I made this huge loud thud as I exited the room. But now we want to continue our series called Uncorked, The Dark Side of Drinking.
2: Okay, so this isn't a prison, but when you land in one of the cells featured in this next story, you're not getting out until you prove you're sober. It's how it works in Manitoba if you're found intoxicated in any public place. So that could be after a Jets game, it could be downtown, it could be in a party and someone just kicks you out. So if a friend is not willing to take you in, if a family member is not willing to take you in, no one sober is at your house, you go to the Main Street Project, which many of us call the drunk tank. And before you say it, I know what many of you out there might be thinking. I wouldn't land there. Well, yes, this place can run the gamut of all sorts of people. Back in February, I took a trip to Main Street Project and found a really interesting, potentially disturbing scene. So busy, they take on an average 30 intoxicated people every single day. They often arrive with a slow gait, struggling to speak just a few words. Men and women who've had too much to drink but can't safely be left alone. So they're escorted to the Main Street Project by police
3: or cadets and then placed in a cell. So the rooms are... Uh, uh, fairly small. Uh, There may be 10 feet by 8 feet inside. Uh, There is a grate in the floor uh, for the washroom. Uh, The flush is on the outside, but it is a cinder block wall and it is a concrete floor. Every client that goes in gets a bottle of water and a mat, um, but it is bare bones.
2: As I step inside Unit 19 and touch the well-worn, slightly stained walls, I immediately want out. I'm not alone. At 3 p.m., two of the cells are already in use. Inside one, the man is sleeping. Down the hall, I hear another asking someone, anyone, to just open the door.
4: It can be very loud if it's full. People are swearing and banging and they're angry and they might be crying. They might be feeling like they want to die. Cal East
2: is the director of detoxification at Main Street Project, an unassuming building on Martha Street you might know as the drunk tank, although that's not what staff call it.
4: We call it either protective care or the intoxicated person's detention area.
2: They don't want to label the 11,000 people coming through
4: its doors each year. They would be in jail or maybe worse if uh, if we didn't have IPTA in Manitoba.
2: This isn't a jail, but the doors do lock from the outside until the person inside has sobered up. A process that begins with a check-in, the person's name, what they came in with, what they consumed. On the day of our visit, a note beside one of the 20 units reads in the margin, mouthwash, and the man who drank it is now sleepy although he won't be resting long. Each unit has a security camera and a window. It's used every 15 minutes for a spot check, and then on the hour. Uh, What day is it today? A check in from one of the dozen staff members, and if necessary, a paramedic. What were you drinking earlier?
4: People do pee in their pants. People do lose other bodily functions. Um, Our staff are very good at helping them clean up and get redressed. We'll give them new clothing when they leave here so they're not ashamed because there is that stigma.
2: One reason why there's a mop in the corner, a smell of disinfectant in the air. Every unit is clean and each person cared for. But in imagining those other smells and sounds, I can't help but think it would only take one trip to this detention area to never want to return again. For most who wind up here, that's true. 74% of the people who came to Main Street last year had just one stay. 14% two stays. But there were a handful of intoxicated who returned over and over again.
4: I think the issue is that society, it's legal and people drink it socially. And so we don't talk about it the same way as we do about illegal substances such as meth,
2: Leaving some to assume Main Street Project isn't for them. That they would never end up here.
3: It is the Jet fan that has just left the Jets game or, or somebody who has just left a concert or somebody at the Forks. Um, there is a wide variety and all walks of life. Now. Ryan Sneeth has seen it all before. A decade ago, he volunteered to be the
2: first city paramedic stationed inside the drunk tank in hopes of keeping clients out of hospital. Back then, an ambulance was being called to Main Street Project a shocking 569 times per year. But then the city agreed to have paramedics on duty 24 hours a day, and they cut those calls in half.
3: So every dollar we spend here, we save $4 in health care. So for the for the taxpayer, it makes a heck of a lot more sense for us to do this than just continue with ambulances. Saving money, and they hope, lives.
4: 11,000
2: people every single year. That's the scenario at Main Street Project. So we like to talk about all sorts of other substances. And that's just for the drunk people. Too drunk to go home or don't have a home or have... Someone who's saying I don't want you to come to my house when you're drunk. We know of city politicians that have ended up there. We know there's been tourists that have ended up there, and it's not just that you like to picture the face of the most vulnerable. Sure, but man, it had it ran the gamut, and I I would not if you walk me in one of those rooms. I'd like I really would like to think I would never get drunk like that to
0: return. Was the number you used or cited seventy four percent that are one time right. visitors per year? Uh, Richard Cloutier talks about painting a radio picture. You did an incredible job of painting that picture. I feel like I've been there myself. And let me tell you, uh, based on just hearing the sounds and the story that you were sharing, I never, ever want to see the inside of that, of that facility. I just can't imagine being there ever Mm-hmm. let alone being there more than once. it' uh, a startling sight. And I guess I've had the added benefit uh, that we're running a, a story on Global News this morning that, that have pictures that, that go along with this story. Uh, very startling.
2: Huge credit to the staff there. They do excellent work. There's also a shelter uh, for people who just need a place to sleep. They do food. They have a detox unit. So if they do find that person who is that repeat customer who eventually, she says, they try really hard to say, oh, hey, John, you're back. And they hope that maybe the third or fourth fourth or 20th time that person might come back, they'll realize I have a situation and I need to deal with that. And so they they do incredible work. But man, if you can imagine, that was three in the afternoon, three in the morning. Just try to imagine what that place would be like.
1: Mackling, McGarry, McNabb, Jeff Braun is here. Kelly Moore is here. Jeff Forte. And yesterday we learned that Ontario is... Planning to ban cell phones from classrooms next year. We've also learned that BC is not going to follow them. And Winnipeg has its own set of rules. So why don't we start there? McNabb, what are how does it work?
2: I've checked with the couple school divisions. So Winnipeg School Division basically just has a responsible use policy kind of on the student to use it in the in the best possible way. But a teacher can interfere with it however they want. Pemina Trails says no cell phones in the classroom or during exams. But again, they would make exceptions if it was going to be used for an educational purpose. Uh, And they also have a rule about pictures, so you're not allowed to take to use the the camera function in the designated areas. I'm sure that's being followed. Oh yeah, camera police are out walking around with a big like uh, school patrol vest on, saying. Don't touch the camera. So it kind of depends from division to division. But the, what they're talking about in Ontario is just a directive saying no cell phones at all, which I'm sure is going to get a lot of people fired up.
5: Have they, have they mentioned what the penalty is going to be if you get caught with a cell phone no. after the ban is in place?
2: No. Basically, the line from the education minister was just that it's time for kids to be learning and not be distracted by these oh. phones and by banning <laughs> cell phone use. We are helping students to focus on the foundational skills they need, like reading, writing, and math.
6: So the, so the students cannot bring the cell phones in the classroom at all?
2: It hasn't. They haven't detailed exactly how it's going to work, but the idea would be that they are not going to be allowed in the class. So correct. It would be I, like, put it in your locker or... I'd like to know how are they going to enforce this?
1: Well, <laughs> and that's one of the things that says how to enforce the ban would be up to individual boards and schools. So they're just saying, this is the rules, but you guys deal with it. I guess. I imagine
7: <laughs> it's just if the teacher sees the kid on the phone, she just takes the phone away.
2: Yeah, but imagine imagine putting that responsibility on the teacher now to grab that Is phone. That, it's well, personal property. They, don't and, they do that now?
7: That's the yeah, that I was must in be what school. happens now.
2: So in Ontario, each of the school divisions also have their own set of rules. And some, I think the Toronto School Board, when I was living there, had banned them and then took that ban away because the teachers were finding it kind of hard to enforce and controversial and parents are yeah. getting all upset and then you have that whole other line of thing of parents saying well what if i need to get a hold of my kid yeah. and i can't get a hold of them or it's if there's a to school. Call to school school yeah. shooting yeah. and they can't text me <laughs> yeah, from the school the, shooting the, the, parents,
0: they're, the parents are as bad in these scenarios as the kids are when the educators realize that something's a problem the, the parents step in I, I don't know when i was in high school some of my classmates had pagers
5: <laughs> uh, <laughs> all, all <Drug> <laughs> was, that, was that different? Different scenario. I'll yeah. say this before Braun does. This was a huge issue when I was going to school. <laughs> oh yeah, I think
7: I saw that. It's like where the birds pecking on the stone tablets, pecking <laughs> on the messages to your friends and stuff like that. They took away sticks and stones. <laughs> but don't you? Don't you wish
2: there was a ban on cell phones in lots of places? Like I, oh. for myself included. Like when you pull it out and you're so distracted by it. In a movie, you see people on it or it rings. I was at church the other day and it rang and the person answered the phone and then slowly walked to the back of the church. And I was like, ah, I think that's just most people go, oh, my gosh, so sorry. And they turn it off. But
0: yeah. Yeah. Hi. Oh, no. Can can I call you back? (laughs) I'm I'm in church right now. Just a sec. I just have to go a little bit. Oh, everybody's looking at me now. Interesting. But it's no big deal. Keep talking. They did what? Oh my goodness! Yes. I
7: got a church sidebar story. When I was a kid, our little church in Altona, there's a volunteer fire department there, and for just by chance, I guess, or they're all buddies or whatever, like eight guys in our church were on that volunteer fire department, and every now and then they'd be we'd be in church, sure, and all their beaters would go <laughs> off at once, and these guys would jump up and run out. And the preacher would sort of stop what we're doing. It's like, let's just say a prayer for whatever's on fire in town right now. It was really weird. I was like, that was crazy.
2: That that I get. That I will allow for. But I think, like, not just in the classroom. I worry about, I don't know what I'm going to think when my kids get to that age. They don't have their own... Personal device, and I get that they have to learn how to use this technology because that's not just because we didn't have it doesn't mean they're not going to be using it every single day of their life.
0: They just have to be able to learn how to do it respectfully. There were lots of things that teachers yeah. confiscated back in the day. Do you remember what, what, what were the name of those notes? That oh, little contraptions little where you would notes, do the yeah, yeah then you do the the one, two, three, four, five pop up thing, and then oh, he does love me, or oh, <laughs> oh, I'm going to marry her, and the whole like a teacher would confiscate notes like. Like, we've been we've been doing everything we can to communicate with one another subversively in school since the beginning of time. This is just one more thing, one more distraction. It's a
7: good thing because it forced the kids to get more creative, which is always a good thing. I, I think that's good, too.
0: I also
2: think, too, there's an argument to be made about sort of the analytical – side of our brains that might not be working because kids so often will just say, I'll Google it, Mm -hmm. right? So if your phone is at your side and the teacher's asking you, you know, like a big question about life or social studies or who do you think changed the world in the whatever century? And you're like, I'll just Google who changed the world in the 17th century. Like that. But when I was a
7: kid, I used to say, well, I'll have to go look that up in the... Encyclopedia. My dad would be like, when I was a kid, there was no encyclopedia.
8: We, were, we had to
7: call Philadelphia and ask when they were founded. And his, grandpa, his dad said, we didn't even have phones. We had to take a horse to Philadelphia and get the answer. So just... It's always the same. Story changes, but it's always the same. It's just the different type of technology and how far yeah. you have to go for it. I caught one of the kids the other
0: day in the kitchen going, hey, Google, what's seven times eight? Right. I'm like, no, 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 no well, not, not in my that house. That is not happening. The Google <laughs> Mini is now in a drawer somewhere so that, w- that's not being used that way. I'd love yeah. to hear from
2: teachers. We're going to talk to the school board at 8 o'clock, but I'd like to hear from the teachers. Like, is it really a big issue in classrooms or kids doing the, their best to sort of keep the the phones in their pockets or wherever they've got them, you know, while they're studying.
1: Yeah. I think that uh, I like the idea of using the tool, the the phones as an educational tool, if there is a, a a way to incorporate it into the classroom. But I do agree, Loren, that uh, since I have this phone in my pocket, I don't even try to do anything in my brain anymore. I just go to my phone and Google it or I pull out the calculator, even with basic math. Sometimes Greg, I, it's to the point where I doubt my own math skills because I'm so reliant on the technology that I, that is simple calculation, seven times eight, I could figure out, but there, there is that small part of me that goes, do I have this right? Well, a double check. Well, what's, but what's the sense in being wrong
0: when you have a tool that can make sure that you're always right. And I think as the older generation, we have to get over the fact that our kids have these tools, that they don't have to memorize necessarily all these facts. There's some that they should to make their lives easier, but this has been going on for a long time, distraction. Tom just texted in saying, I can't count how many times my teacher took my hockey cards away (laughs) during class. (laughs) I was there, man. Uh, My hockey news, trying to memorize the standings and all the statistics. Mackling. Give it up.
1: <laughs> By the way, those paper notes you were talking about. Yeah, what are they a, called? A fortune teller or a chatterbox. Yes, yes the chatterbox, fortune teller is yes. what I remember it being called, I think. Do we normalize alcohol consumption too much through comedy? And it was a close result. 55% said, no, lighten up. Funny is funny. 45% say, yes, and it's a problem. And if you want to read more on Lorenz's piece on wine moms and mommy juice, go to cjob.com. But today we're talking about behavior. Earlier we visited Main Street Project, as we know it, the drunk tank. And right now I want to tell you about my story with the Addictions Foundation of Manitoba. Uh... I'm not an alcoholic, but I likely would be one had I not sought the help of the Addictions Foundation of Manitoba nearly 20 years ago. That's why we want to talk right now, about as we continue our series on alcohol, I haven't made it a secret over the years. I like... A good drink. We do lots of stuff in this show that revolves around booze, whether it's festivals like the Wine Festival, Mm -hmm. which is coming up in a few weeks, by the way, or the beer festivals that happen in our city involving our local craft breweries or other local producers like Capital K. Hey, I like to drink. I'm not hiding that.
2: I said the same thing yesterday, Brett, yeah.
1: Yeah, so I mean I can do so safely and responsibly thanks to the AFM. And uh, the reason I'm telling you this and opening myself up to this is because maybe you have been quietly wondering to yourself, do I have a drinking problem? Or maybe someone close to you, a friend, a family member has been drinking too much and you're worried about them. We got text messages yesterday from listeners saying I, I couldn't bear to watch my friends kill themselves anymore with all of their drinking. Now for me, oh, like I said, almost 20 years ago, my early 20s, I wasn't drinking every day. But when I would drink on the weekend, I was just out of control. I didn't just want to have fun. I wanted to get as drunk as I could. I would binge drink as fast as I could. I would throw up. My friends It got to a point where my friends would actually place bets as to what time of the night I would puke because it was just a given. I, would, I, would, I was like a puke and rally guy. I know that's gross, but that's I'm trying to give you my experience here. Sometimes I would black out or I'd be belligerent. I was basically a mess. And it was getting progressively worse. My relationships with my family were at risk. My relationships with my friends were at risk. Finally, my parents had enough. They called the Addictions Foundation to see what services they offered. And they ordered me to go see them. I was given a choice by my parents. Go to the AFM or get out. So I went to see the AFM and I took a test. It was to determine if I was an alcoholic. I don't remember the specifics about the test. I think it took an hour, but I remember it asking some tough questions and it was hard because I had to be honest. So right there, taking that test, I had to face some really hard truths about my life, the choices I was making and the direction I was going. When the results came back, they determined I was not an alcoholic, but I did have a drinking problem. Thankfully, they had a potential solution. It was a class on responsible drinking. I think it was like six weeks. We'd meet once a week. We'd talk about strategies to help us be responsible, essentially not be idiots when we drink. Through that class, I kind of developed a system for myself, which I still follow to this day. I have a set of rules that I have to follow. Again, these are my rules, not the rules the AFM set out. They were just there to help guide me and show me the way to find what works for me. So in this case, let's think of Sober Brett as Gizmo, <laughs> the mogwai from the movie Gremlins. Remember the rules for Gizmo? Sure do. No, no. Light, light.
7: What
8: happened?
7: He hates bright lights. You know, there's some things I forgot to tell you guys, and they're really important. Number one, he hates bright lights. We know that. But you've got to keep him out of the sunlight. Sunlight will kill him. Number two, keep him away from water. Don't give him any water to drink. And whatever you do, don't give him a bath. And probably the most important thing, don't ever feed him after midnight.
1: I'm not playing this clip to make light of the situation. I'm playing this to illustrate that if I don't follow my rules, the gremlins come out. To make another cinematic reference, I'm kind of like Stu, the Ed Helms character in The Hangover. You ever see The Hangover 2? Yep. Not as good as the first sure one. Sure wasn't. But there's a scene near the end when, when he said it, I thought hey, that's me. I got a dark side.
7: There's a demon in me. This demon takes me to some pretty weird places. We lost Teddy for two days in Bangkok.
1: I never lost a friend for two days in Bangkok. But if I don't follow the rules, that demon, that dark side comes out. So what are my rules? One, when drinking liquor, which for me is rum. Single ounce pours. I used to free pour two, three, maybe more ounces. Bad things happen when I do that. Do you measure? Yeah. Okay. Always a shot glass. Tall glass is rule number two with lots of mix. Short glasses don't work because I'm not a sipper. I'm more of a happy guzzler as my cousin once described me as I just plow through the short glass, which means the alcohol gets consumed faster and then bad things happen. Number three. Don't drink on an empty stomach or at the very least get food in the stomach quickly. Like if I'm at a restaurant meeting friends and if I haven't eaten, I'll have a couple of beers on tap, but then I'll order some food as quickly as I can because on an empty stomach, it doesn't take long. For bad things to happen, and there are some other sub rules I try to follow as well. Like when drinking rum, I try to keep it to forty percent because I used to drink Sailor Jerry all the time—a delicious spiced rum, but it's forty-seven percent. It's strong, and that extra seven percent does make a difference. It's like drinking a shot of alcohol and a beer at the same time, mm-hmm. pretty much. Great way to look at it. So, other times I'll stop in between drinks and have a glass of water. I think Greg, you call that a chaser? Uh, well, a spacer. Spacer, yes. like yes. the space Smart the mouth. Yeah. Yep. And uh, I'm often met when I do this. Are you drinking water? What's wrong with you? And that ties into some of the stuff we were talking about yesterday. You get shamed for not drinking. Uh, So, and then I try not to mix alcohols, but if doing so, I definitely make sure all of the previous rules have been followed. If I do all of this stuff, then I'm good. And that's not to say that I haven't had continued problems over the years. For a long time, I was known as the guy who, when he was drinking, was generally the drunkest or in recent years, after things kind of fell apart for me and I had to sell my house, I guess back in 2013, I was depressed, drank a lot, I'd wake up, sometimes no memory of going to bed, and then I'd run to my phone to see if I did anything stupid, sometimes I did send stupid messages, other times I'd like wake up on my living room floor, eventually I remembered what I learned from the AFM, and I am okay again today, but if it wasn't for them, I wouldn't be okay, and in fact, I'd... I don't know, think it's an exaggeration to say, I'd probably be dead. And again, I'm telling you this because if you think you're going through something with drinking, it's okay to ask for help. I often joke when people come in the room and say, oh, it smells funny in here, what's that smell? And I'll make a joke, oh, does it smell like rum and shame? <laughs> it's not really a joke though. If I get too drunk, I feel such deep shame the next day, I can barely breathe. That shame makes you just want to hide. But if you need help, don't hide. Mackling McGarry McNabb thank you very much for joining us on The Start on 680 CJOB and indeed our series on drinking continues and Just moments ago, I told you how many years ago, nearly 20 years ago, the Addictions Foundation of Manitoba helped me get a hold of my drinking before it completely ruined my life. And I continue to use what they taught me to this day to keep, as we put in the last segment, to keep the demons at bay. And in case you or someone in your life maybe has a drinking problem, perhaps the Addictions Foundation can help you too. Richard Hines is a counselor with the AFM. He joins us now in studio. Richard, good morning. Good morning. So close to 20 years ago, I took a test with you guys to determine if I was an alcoholic. Is that something that you,
6: you still have, a test? We don't have a test. Uh, what we do with people is we invite them to come into our services so we can have a conversation with them about where they're at in their life and how drinking or other drugs may fit into their life.
2: How how does that conversation sometimes start? Does it begin with, I think I have a problem or I think I'm an alcoholic or I don't think I'm an alcoholic, but I'm just checking you know, like people are ashamed to admit
6: half the time. I think it. I think there's the range of responses that people have. Yeah, people sometimes have a very clear idea that there's an issue because it's something they've been thinking of for thinking about for a long time, and other people really are coming in pretty curious because some things have been happening, some consequences have been happening in their life. I know you mentioned kind of broken relationships. That's a really common one, or uh, just difficulty looking at what they want in their life and how they seem to not be getting closer to that and noticing that again these consequences are getting in the way Richard, of, of those goals yeah
0: how how often are people showing up at your door with a ride from a friend or a loved one or on their own because they've taken the bus or driven them themselves there themselves.
6: Yeah, again, it happens kind of across the spectrum. You do get a lot of people who are brought in by family members. Sometimes it's an aunt, sometimes it's a grandmother, sometimes uh, it's a friend who have expressed concern to them and are encouraging them to have that conversation with someone who's outside of the family unit, who's not a friend, where they can speak more openly about some of the things that are happening. Those, those are definitely things uh, that we encourage people to do is to, is to have someone come with them.
0: What is it about that experience of speaking to someone that you don't have a personal connection with? I I always find it fascinating that we seem to be able to be more open with someone that we don't know. Once Once we get through the formalities of establishing why we're having this discussion, it feels easier. Why is that, Richard?
6: I think partly uh, it's it's the stigma definitely attached to seeking help and because sometimes people just assume that we should know how to do things or we assume we should know how to do things and that's not always the case we 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 maybe this is the first time this is happening to us and I think when we seek help from someone else, let's say a professional um, we we can be more open because, that person, let's say a family member, they're more invested in our lives. They just care about us. They just want us to stop doing the things that are getting, in, getting us into trouble. And so most often they'll say, why don't you just stop? That will make things better. And that's not, uh, that's not always very helpful. It, it doesn't mean it's not coming from a place of caring, but it's not always helpful to people to just hear, you should just stop.
1: So when I was there, I ended up taking a course that you offered on responsible drinking. Do you still have that?
6: Yeah, we have we have. It's not necessarily called that, but we have things like that. We have options for people who may be seeking a range of services. From let's say inquiring, do I have a problem? That that program uh, is called coming to terms, and that's something where you're trying to help people understand how alcohol or drugs fits into their life, and and do they need to reassess where it fits or how much uh, it's a part of their life. That's a really good good course for those people. We also have just one-to-one counseling for those people who may need that one-to-one ability to work through that issue. And we do have, I know you mentioned earlier about, um, do we have a test? We, we do have a screening tool on our forms that we use for, for someone to kind of identify their insight into their alcohol or drug use. And that's something we use also that screening tool, but it's very short It's four questions.
1: Okay, yeah, mine yeah. was much longer. Like, I felt like I was writing an exam. Yeah. Uh, so I was stressed out because I wanted to, I, I always want to do well on a test, but because of the, the given the content, yeah. it was very <laughs> personal, right? right? I had to admit some awful things about myself. Well, oh,
2: I think people have a hard time, and we talked about going to the doctor yesterday, and the doctor says, how much do you drink a week? And yeah. I, I lie every time. Mm-hmm. Honestly, mm-hmm. I do. And I and that says something, I think, yeah. about the idea that you don't admit, even even if it's not a problem, you don't even want to look like there were the hints of anything, right? Yeah. How How much of it is behavior at the end of the day that drives that person into your door saying, I don't like who I am?
6: I, I think it's always it's always the actions and how they come into conflict with their values and what their priorities are, what their goals are in life. It's always that that brings people in even and even that just that slight question is this causing a problem? That's the thing that's bringing them in to talk to us or whether it's a family member or a service provider saying you need to seek help. That's always that, that, that pulls people in. Like I
2: wouldn't have done that if I hadn't been drinking or I wouldn't have hurt that person if I hadn't been drinking, but it's a repeat thing. And so now I have a,
6: like a behavioral problem when I'm drunk. Yeah. And sometimes people will come in and they, again, the part where they're not clear for themselves, if this is an issue, that's the part where we come in where, because we're in a place where we're, um, approaching them because we're not their family member, we can have a conversation say, hey, what's been happening? They tell us. We notice as they're telling us, hey, each time uh, you drank, this happened. Did you notice that? Have you thought about that before, what the connection between those two things is? We
0: often hear this idea of you've got to hit rock bottom before you ask for help. but yeah. that, that, That's not necessarily
6: true, is it, Richard? Definitely not. I mean, some people definitely seem to seem to go that way but most people will make changes to their alcohol use On through self-reflection, through their own insight, noticing things and saying, "Oh God, I got to make changes and noticing what you said earlier about maybe I need to come up with some rules for myself or some things that I, a structure that I can follow to help mitigate some of the risk or some of the issues I've been experiencing. And people sometimes come up with that on their own. And sometimes we help them come up with those things, either through individual counseling or just in a group setting. Richard Hines, we've we got to go here, but if somebody does want to reach out to
1: the Addictions Foundation, how do they do that?
6: Well, they can come down to AFM uh, at one of our sites. So we have a youth site that's open till June, and we have a men's and women's site on, on Magnus and on Portage Avenue. And, of course, all those addresses are available on our website. There's also a provincial addictions helpline that people can call. That um, I don't have the number for right this moment. That's okay. Is it on your website? <laughs> it is, yes.
1: afm.mb.ca and the addictions helpline is 1 855 662 6605. Richard Hines, counselor with the AFM, thank you for joining us today. We appreciate the visit. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. And now let's talk about cell phones. Ontario looking to ban them. Is your child allowed to bring cell phones into school? You guys? Yes. McNabb? Well,
2: they don't have one,
0: so I've never inquired. Okay, but I'm sure I- <laughs> my kids. My kids don't have their own, but they if they had one, they'd be allowed to bring it into school.
2: Yeah, mine are six and eight, so if they have a cell phone right now, they're in serious trouble. But. It, aside, every kid, most kids these days, they keep telling me they're going to have one by 12 because all their friends who are that age have that. But in any event, Ontario <laughs> is moving to introduce a law that would see cell phones banned in all classrooms, with the education minister saying students should focus more on learning. And so we're asking, do you think a similar directive should be made here? Right now, there's no province-wide ban. Each division is allowed to do what it wants. So in Pemina Trails, for example, phones aren't allowed in class during the day or during exams, but schools can designate an area and a time of day when they are allowed. In Winnipeg's largest school division, they have what they call a responsible use policy. And so to tell us more about how that works, we're joined by Winnipeg School Division's Acting Director of Information Technology, Jamie Hutchinson. Good morning. Good morning. So tell us about this policy. What does responsible use mean? I can have it as long as I'm not on it all the time?
8: Yeah, responsible use is looking at uh, using the technology for learning and educational purposes. And, uh, if it's in the classroom and it's out, uh, the expectation is that it's being used for learning and educational purposes.
0: I know I've heard stories, uh, quite often that, uh, these, these Devices are used for good rather than evil. There are some folks that some kids don't like to put up their hands in class and it's a way for them to communicate with their teacher. I've heard that there are some classrooms that are set up so that kids can respond to questions and ask questions via text message or other messaging services with their teacher. So on that front, I, I think it's a, a good thing. What, what sort of examples do you have in Winnipeg School Division 1, Jamie, where the, where the technology is being used in that fashion?
8: Uh, there's numerous examples, and again, it's at the discretion of the teacher. I mean, technology is a tool uh, to be implemented in the classroom uh, in the demonstration of curricular outcomes. So teachers are using that in a variety of different ways within the classroom. I've seen uh, examples where cell phones are used uh, to create online portfolios, uh, showing progress and facilitating uh, parent, guardian, caregiver communication with the school. So it it kind of ends that age-old question when the student gets home from school, (laughs) uh, what did you do in school today? Nothing. Uh, Students are keeping track of their learning and they can chart progress over time using a cell phone, for example. Um, I've seen examples where uh, we have something called a flip classroom that some teachers are using where the teacher's actually doing lectures that the students can access uh, through their cell phone, they can watch those lectures and then come into class prepared for discussion or to engage in a chemistry experiment, for example, already having done the prep work outside of class.
2: You mentioned it's for good, Jamie, but I, I have to kind of question that only because I, as adults, I've been sitting, I've sat in me- meetings and watched all sorts of 40 and 50 year olds not pay any attention to the CEO who might be in town because they're on their phones. And so I do wonder how often teachers are finding teenagers or on their social media sites or Snapchatting or whatever the heck is the latest thing rather than using it for good.
8: Yeah, that's definitely uh, something that comes up from time to time, that uh, part of our role as educators within the province of Manitoba is to look at literacy and uh, digital literacy is a piece of that, that uh, the province has provided some guidelines with respect to uh, literacy with information and communications technology across the curriculum. So as it's integrated into all the different curricular areas, at the core of that particular model that the province has provided is ethics and responsibility. And so uh, when there are those instances that invariably come up within the context of the school system uh, where a cell phone is being used in class for not for learning and educational purposes, that would warrant a discussion between the teacher and that student. Uh, Following that, there there may be a a wider discussion involving parents or caregivers, and uh, we kind of address those issues as they come up as a learning process.
0: I suspect that would be the case, whether there's a ban or a responsibility use or responsible use policy in place, it's going to fall on the teacher and that interaction and that relationship between the individual students and the principal and the teacher and, and all the decision makers. Will it not?
8: Yeah, that invariably that what we do is educate. And part of, I mean, it's the proliferation of uh, information and communications technology in can, today's society can't be ignored. That uh, kids need to know how to use that ethically and responsibly. And the school has kind of taken on that role to educate.
1: Jamie Hutchinson is Acting Director of Information Technology with Winnipeg School Division, joining us live on 680 CJOB. Thank you very much, Jamie.
8: You're very welcome.
1: Mackling McGarry and McNabb and Kelly Moore is here. Greg, you just spotted something. Uh, We had to get Kelly in.
0: Yeah, I was on Twitter and uh, just like our conversation in the previous segment and uh, news that... One of the great sports writers, great journalists, great people of Winnipeg has passed away, Kelly.
5: Yeah, Randy Turner, who uh, used to be the columnist for the Winnipeg Free Press, and I, and he, while he did write sports, Greg, I would not just confine him to that. I would say one of the greatest writers mm-hmm. ever, and I, I'm not, I, at least in my opinion, I am not exaggerating. Uh, Randy could put pen to paper and tell a story like no one else. Uh, His columns were appointment reading in the Winnipeg Free Press, especially when he was covering sports, and uh, I just feel so lucky and fortunate to have traveled on a few Manitoba Moose road trips with Randy, and uh, he was as good a human being as you could possibly want to meet. He was... Incredibly humble, as m- many of the great ones are, and I have to tell a, a humorous story here because I don't want it to just be doom and gloom. It's it's been too tough this year losing Pick and now and now Randy Turner. But we were on a road trip, and Randy Carlisle, the old curmudgeon that he was, uh, Randy was not a fa- Randy Turner was not a fashionista. As anybody who knew him knew that. So Randy shows up for a game dressed like Randy Turner usually would be, and Carlisle lets him have it. Randy Turner, to his credit, I mean, this is a fabulous writer, uh, well-known, went to the store and found business casual clothes for the next game. And, uh, you know, we were kind of uh, chuckling about his his wardrobe choices, but uh, our sincere condolences to his family and many many friends. He was so well respected throughout the industry.
0: And, you know, for a long time, did the sports, did incredible work in the free press on a variety of issues. A proud Manitoban wrote so lovingly and caringly about our province. But the newer generation, the younger people, fell in love with him too because he was by far one of the top five Twitter followers oh, in absolutely. Canada. Yeah. He was absolutely brilliant on Twitter. And so there's not just the newspaper reading. Right. People will know about, about Randy yeah. Turner. He was brilliant on Twitter. And there'll be a lot of people that know who we're uh, thinking of and, and mourning today. He yeah.
2: mentioned just his humbleness. I, my very first job was at the Free Press. And I think at the time he was the music reporter. And so this was in 1999. And he would, he would that sense of humor was pretty obvious. Oh. I mean, it wasn't just, you know, sometimes people are funny on paper. But that was just his thing. And I I wanted to say the kindness that was demonstrated to a young person at 21 years old, right, who doesn't know a thing. um, He was the guy that never judged that. He was fantastic.
1: Thank you very much, Jeff Braun, Mackling, McGarry and McNabb. In a moment, we want to tell you about this storm in the United States that's now being described as a cyclone bomb details on that in a moment. But before we do that, today is day two of our series on alcohol, uncorked, the dark side of drinking. Loren McNabb, you took us to the drunk tank this morning.
0: Yeah,
2: so that's what many people would call it in Manitoba, and it's the place you go if cadets or police or say a bar says you're unruly and they kick you out and then the police get called and you don't have anywhere to go, or if your parent's not home or your roommate's not home, there's no one sober to take care of you, you will end up here It's known as the Main Street Project, and they don't call it the drunk tank. They call it the intoxicated person's detention area. But it's basically a way of saying it's a housing area for people who are drunk, and they stay there until they're sober. And they're they're in rooms, in cells that are are monitored by cameras and get really rowdy uh, in the middle of the night. Obviously, as you can imagine, one drunk person, let alone 20 or 21, uh, and... It's a pretty bare-bones situation. I commented when I was there that I would never want to go, but if I ended up there, you'd like to think you'd never return. Here's just a little bit of what we'll play again at 10.30 with Jeff Courier on what's it like inside the drunk tank.
3: So the rooms are uh, uh, fairly small. Uh, They're maybe uh, 10 feet by 8 feet inside. Uh, There is a grate in the floor uh, for the washroom. Uh, The flush is on the outside, but it is a cinder block wall, and it is a concrete floor. Every client that goes in gets a bottle of water and a mat, um, but it is bare bones.
4: IPTA can be very loud if it's full, people are swearing and banging and they're angry and they might be crying, they might be feeling like they want to die. They would be in jail or maybe worse if, uh, if we didn't have IPTA in Manitoba.
2: So they get 11,000 people every single year. The math is about 30 folks a day. Um, A large chunk of them don't come back. They have that one-time visit and maybe just realize, okay, I need some help. But we know that there have been city politicians there, tourists, like all sorts of different visitors along the way have ended up at the Main Street Project overnighting and kind of locked in a room until they sober up. Um, We'll have more with Jeff Currier at 1030.
0: We have so many conversations about drinking and driving with kids to the point where they'll put those mangled vehicles on the front lawn and some high schools in order to get the point across safe grad time. And I can only imagine you've heard about being scared straight. Mm-hmm. You know, we used to have constable Richard Jones used to come to Isaac Brock school when I was a kid and share pictures of the youth center, the youth center in Porridge, La Prairie at the time. And to talk about what would happen to you if you committed a crime and you got into the youth justice system. I can only imagine that a tour Of the Main Street Project for young people might have them thinking twice about their relationship with alcohol before they even start one.
2: Yeah, the part of the problem I think is that in Winnipeg, and I'll be the first to admit this, you have this sort of misconception or you stereotype. You know, it's, it's just off Main Street in Higgins. And so you in your head, you're like, well, the clientele is probably That's the, the, neighborhood the, it the serves. most vulnerable and it might be a homeless person or other. And they just said it's all walks of life, which is alcohol. Alcohol affects all walks of life. Right. Everyone from Tuxedo to St. Paul to the north to the south. I mean, it's just it's so pervasive. And so their clientele is not just who you think.
1: And so we did that earlier this morning, and you're going to hear more on that coming up at 10.30 on Jeff Courier's show. You can read more about it at cjob.com. And as well, at 7.37, I told you about how I was sent to the Addictions Foundation of Manitoba in my early 20s. My parents said, go there or get out, because I was... I had a drinking problem. I wasn't uh, the alcohol. Uh, the Addictions Foundation deemed I was not alcoholic because I wasn't drinking every day. But when I did drink, I was out of control, and I had to get a handle of it. And they helped me get a handle on that. And uh, Brenda heard my story earlier, and she says her father. She's texting us at 204-780-6868. My father was an alcoholic many many years ago. It was hard on me because I was just four at the time, and my mother had to look after six kids because my mother divorced my father because of his drinking. Thank you for sharing your story on CJOB. God bless. So we'll make sure that both of those elements are in the podcast for the start. You can subscribe to that wherever you get podcasts, or you can go to The Audio Vault at CJOB.com.
2: And I don't think we or and we should properly thank you, Brett, for sharing that story, because it's because you have the courage to say, look, I had an issue, I took care of it, and I'm I'm a responsible drinker now that so many people have written in this morning to say that they experienced the same thing. And I think the more you just talk about it, all of us about saying, oh, I wonder if I maybe should take care of myself better, the better off we're all going to be. It's hard to say. And and I know you're you're not, you're not, you were just saying I had an issue and I've dealt with it, but there's lots of us that probably could benefit from maybe looking a little bit inwards and saying, oh, maybe I should make that
1: phone call too. Well, and, you're, and the thing is like, while I have dealt with it and I've set myself up uh, a structure to stay on track. I'm not saying that there aren't times where I don't... Well, you're human. Yeah, like just earlier, like I talked about how I, I don't free pour and I use tall glasses. Well, I went to a friend's place a few months ago. He didn't have tall glasses and he didn't have a shot glass. So I took a risk and I... And I just kind of re-poured into this small glass. And by the end of the night, I was a sloppy mess. Mm-hmm. And I was deeply ashamed of myself. So those are the t- kinds of things I try to avoid. Because when I get like that, I know the monster comes out. There's
2: not a single person who doesn't wake up in the morning after. They might have had that experience, though, Brett, and doesn't have... You mentioned this deep shame. Like, we need to be a, a bit more honest with the feelings that alcohol brings. And it can, make, it can be fun. It can be totally fun. I've had great nights with a few drinks with friends. And I will continue to. But I've also had those mornings where you wake up and, like, you know what? That one extra drink probably was my downfall last
8: night.
0: The best bad decisions and the worst bad decisions that I've ever made in my lifetime have involved alcohol. And so I don't think we're sitting here saying that nobody should ever drink alcohol again. That's not what this series is about. It's about an open and honest discussion about our relationship with alcohol and whether or not you need to have one with yourself. There's lots of people who alcohol is not their friend, but it doesn't mean that they they need to abstain from drinking altogether. They just They may have to, that might be the only thing that they can do, but they can do other things like altering the way they interact with, with alcohol and it it doesn't necessarily have to rule their life.
1: And much more on alcohol-related behavior throughout today on 680 CJOB and on Global Winnipeg. Now, we first told you about this storm in the United States yesterday. One of our listeners, Jeff, sent us an email early yesterday morning saying, look at this storm that is brewing in the United States. It has hurricane qualities. That was not Jeff saying that. That was the me- yeah. U.S. Meteorological... What is it? The U.S. Meteorological Service?
2: Meteorol- the, you know, whatever you said. Yes. <laughs> Yes, I, that's I what it is. Meteorological. Just go with the
1: U.S. Weather Service.
0: It's, <laughs> it's way easier to listen, say. Listen, they're
2: the guys that are designed to bring us <laughs> the, the the science, and sometimes they get that gets turned into like you know crazy headlines. But they're now calling it in the states, at least, a bomb cyclone. Seventy million people in the path of this uh, hurricane type system, but that's bringing snow and hail and rain crazy. So we're going to have to keep an eye on that because we'll be on the tip of that, I believe, in the southeast corner, according to the models.
1: Yeah, that's right. Southeastern Manitoba is under a snowfall warning. Winnipeg and immediate surrounding areas under a special weather statement. So Winnipeg looks like it's going to get grazed by this. At least that's what the, the forecast is calling for. But southeastern Manitoba could see more snow.
0: But of course, our big concern, if we don't get this snow, is we're going to see it in a different form. And it might not be this week. It might not even be this month. It might be next month coming up in the, the form river. of floodwaters coming north up the Red River, or would it be down the Red River from the... So anyway, because it's upstream down, it doesn't matter at the way. point, it's coming this way.
2: And going that way is Global's Mike Konkin, our, our weather specialist, and so we're going to check in with him throughout the day and tomorrow. I think the storm moves in tonight, tomorrow morning, and so we'll have him on our show tomorrow morning to kind of... He's always said he likes to cover storms, so let's just... Put them in the middle of one.
1: Yeah, Grand Forks County is under a a blizzard warning from 1 a.m. Thursday to 1 a.m. Friday. They're expecting wind up to 55 miles per hour. That's 88 kilometers an hour, as well as snow accumulations of up to 1 to 8 inches and ice accumulations of a light glaze expected. And as I mentioned earlier, the only light glaze I enjoy is on a donut So, this doesn't sound fun.
0: Before we take a pause here and uh, welcome Jeff Courier in the studio, if you go to globalnews.ca, another tragedy in Africa. A building has collapsed in Nigeria. And uh, so, we've got live uh, streaming at globalnews.ca, rescue efforts underway. Uh, this building contained a school, so a tragic scene happening in, is it Lagos the, uh, in, in Nigeria? That is the capital city of that country, so we'll, we'll keep you up to date on that best as we can.